I think it's safe to say we're all feeling pretty health conscious at the moment. I mean, not only are we in the middle of a once in a century pandemic, we're also coming into peak flu season in the Southern Hemisphere. The whole world is waiting on a COVID-19 vaccine. It'd mean the end to face masks, lockdowns, and most importantly, the loss of loved ones. Medicine has made some of the most feared and deadly diseases such as polio easily preventable. And to a lot of people's surprise, many of the medicines developed in the last century were derived from naturally occurring molecules found in plants, bacteria, and fungi. So today, we're going to take a look at some of Mother Nature's masterpieces, plants that heal. So many of the medicines that we use have a plant or, or a fungal basis or some basis in nature. Being used for common cold to diabetes to dementia, pneumonia, you name them. I've studied hundreds of different medicinal plants and uh, none of them can hold a candle to, uh, to cannabis. In this episode, we're going to take a look at both the history and the latest developments in traditional Chinese herbal medicine, cannabis research, and you'll get some tips for growing your very own plants that heal at home. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and you're listening to Branch Out. At the first hint of a sore, scratchy throat, many of us know to curl up on the couch with a fresh ginger and lemon tea with a dash of honey to sweeten the deal. Now, the Aussie bush is filled with an array of plants that have powerful healing properties. Some of the most commonly used chemicals that are extracted from Australian plants are, are things like eucalyptus oil and tea tree oil, lemon myrtle oil, all of these things that have quite a, an interesting history of the way in which they've been used, but are suddenly coming back into favour. That's Dr. Brett Summerall. He's Director of Research and Chief Botanist at the new Australian Institute of Botanical Science, and he's based at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. So things like eucalyptus oil can be quite antimicrobial, and people have started now to think about the benefit of using chemicals like these, which have this benefit of being antimicrobial or working in a topical location like that. Yeah, eucalypts are a powerful homegrown Aussie gem that could come in handy with solving one of the world's looming health disasters. As we get into the problems of things like antibiotic resistance, particularly in terms of those antibiotic resistant microorganisms, bacteria and the like that are developing, and the ability to use chemicals like these as effectively a biocide in that sort of scenario. So. We're starting to see different uses, so we might have just thought that eucalyptus oil is just a nice thing to give you that eucalyptus smell or scent when you're cleaning things or whatever, but it's starting to have a you know, really interesting use uh, in those sort of fields. Botany is one of the oldest branches of science, and still to this day, it's all about discovering, describing, and documenting new species of plant life. And for Brett, it's also a great opportunity to get out of the office. It's the absolute best part of what I've chosen to do is to get into the bush uh, and to be able to explore all of the wonderful diversity of unique ecosystems that occur in Australia. So we've collected things from eucalypts eking a living out in the, the deserts through to species in rainforests, in the alpine country, all over Australia. The overwhelming majority of Australia's flora is found nowhere else on the planet. There's about 20,000 vascular plant species, these are your flowering plants, trees, grasses and vines. 
about 14,000 non-vascular plant species like algae, 250,000 species of fungi, and over 3,000 species of lichens. And there's still a decent chunk of them waiting to be formally described and documented. And every field trip is a chance to find more. One of the things that we do is to go out there and to do surveys of various areas to understand what's flowering, what's growing, what's there, but also document the species that are there, observe any changes, which is critically important now that we're going through this, this period of dramatic climatic change as a result of a changing climate. So it's component of all of those things added together to better understand what's happening in the environment or better understand what's happening with our flora so that we can better manage it, better protect it and, and better understand what might be out there. Now, any one of those undocumented species comes with the opportunity for potential medicinal properties to be identified and utilised to save lives. But formally describing a new species is a long and complicated process. It's often said that a, a week out in the field gives you a year or two's work afterwards. When you go out in the field, straight away you may be able to say this particular species looks quite weird or it's a bit strange, it's different from what I was expecting to see or it's just, hell, this is just really weird. So you collect the material, press it, we bring it back into the herbarium, then it's in the process of making sure it's clean, dried, pest-free to go into the collection. And then once it's in there, that's when the, the process of defining it as a new species then going through all the technicalities required for describing a species. So it is about careful observation of the specimens that you've collected, careful observation and measurements of various characters like flower, uh, flower colour, flower type. It could be careful examination of the leaves, the hairs on the leaves, and hairs in the petals, all these sorts of weird and strange things. The National Herbarium of New South Wales is currently located at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, and contains over 1.4 million botanical specimens. It's moving to a brand new state-of-the-art facility, which is currently being built at the Australian Botanic Garden, Mount Annan. And an important part of the move is making the entire collection digital. And that's one of the fabulous things about being able to digitise our collection with these high resolution photos is a lot of this will now be able to be done by people all over the planet with these amazing high resolution photos that we're, we're producing in the, in the digitisation process where we're photographing all of the specimens in the collection. Along with the physical specimen and high res image, there's also important notes on the plant's appearance and where it was found. And since the advent of DNA technology, another important part of the process is also analysing its genetic information. All of that data, known as the plant's phylogeny, is then written up and hopefully published in a peer-reviewed journal. Only with a formal name and description is it possible for other scientists to then research potential medicinal uses. But not every revolutionary medical discovery was made this way. I think the story of, of penicillin and the way that Flory uh, and the like were working on penicillin in World War II and the, the impact that it had so quickly in terms of saving people's lives at that time is just an amazing outcome and just highlights the importance of the serendipity of making an observation about this particular fungus was stopping the growth of bacteria around it on a contaminated plate and then going from that to isolating the chemical that was involved in, in production of that in order to be able to, to save people's lives is wonderful. But the pharmaceutical industry has moved far beyond accidentally noticing some bacteria on an agar plate. Today's modern techniques and synthetic chemistry advancements have made behemoths of pharmaceutical companies. Some might say it's also come at a cost. 
due to our over-reliance on prescription drugs. But there are traditional medicine systems that still retain their ancient wisdom today. And they are ancient. It varies. I mean, different people say different things. And, and some people said um, more than 5,000 years old, and some people said more than 3,500 years old. That's Professor Dennis Chang. He's a professor of pharmacology at the Nickham Health Research Institute at Western Sydney Uni. His research centres around traditional Chinese medicine, and he says the oldest text, Materia Medica, is believed to be from the 2nd century BC. Since then, many others have built on its foundation. This so-called Compendiums of Materia Medica that was written by a famous TCM master called Dr. Li Shizhen, uh, who actually um, uh, was in Ming Dynasty, it was about 400 to 500 years ago. So that's still being used quite comprehensively because that is the one comprehensively cover many uh, traditional Chinese medicine, herbal medicine. There are also written records of Roman, Egyptian, Persian and Hebrew cultures that show herbs were used to treat practically every known illness. And Professor Chang initially trained in Western medicine with postgraduate studies in pharmacology. Then I thought, okay, I could actually apply my pharmacology skill researching into Chinese medicine. Uh, so obviously, since then, I have been to, to look at a whole range of pharmacological studies of uh, herbal medicine. Uh, and due to my medical backgrounds, I also start actually working in clinical trials and, and recruiting patients and to testing uh, herbal medicine as well. Traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, is a respected alternative to Western medicine. It's a sweeping discipline, touching on a number of ailments and in quite a unique way. There are many um, different illness and disease herbal medicine can treat. There are probably over 100,000 different herbal formulations uh, being used uh, for the management of various diseases um, from uh, common cold to diabetes to dementia, pneumonia, you name them. One of the features of Chinese medicine is that they do put lots of emphasis on prevention and they also do put lots of em emphasis on healing and also rehabilitation, so after the disease and how to uh, use herbal medicine, acupuncture, to restore the body function after the major units. So that's um, also quite unique. While the discipline itself is thousands of years old, just like Western medicine, traditional Chinese medicine is no stranger to the modern age. Rather than using the whole plant these days, scientists today can use the latest technology to isolate and extract the active compounds they need from different plants you can use the same technology to purify and to make your herbal preparation even more effective because you hardly concentrate those um, compounds responsible for their pharmacological effects. And we also have a lot of scientists working on the mechanistic studies and you might be targeting certain receptors, the active component of herbal medicine might be uh, triggering a cascade effect in a certain pathway and leading to the pharmacological outcomes. And, and those sort of things has been happening quite significantly over the last two decades. 
Professor Chang has been involved in a broad range of research into the applications of traditional Chinese medicine, and he's seen some exciting possibilities, especially in one area that currently has no approved pharmaceutical medicine. So vascular dementia is um, the second most common form of dementia. You are, you must be very familiar with Alzheimer's disease, right? So then Alzheimer's disease is the number one and then vascular dementia is number two. So obviously, I think there's probably um, 80-85% of the dementia uh, belongs to Alzheimer's disease. And there's a 10 to 15% of the uh, dementia belongs to vascular dementia, which is uh, fundamentally caused by uh, stroke, uh, like a mini stroke. And some people are not even aware of. So um, uh, as a result of that, it, it actually will lead to damage to the neuron. If that happened to be the region responsible for neurocognition, then it lead to dementia. Professor Chang and his team at the Nikam Health Research Institute are working with the Academy of Chinese Medical Science in China, who are developing a herbal formula targeting vascular dementia. So basically, three herbs in it. Um, it's a, a ginkgo we know, so it's commonly used for neurocognitive impairment. Um, ginseng is called a wonder herbs uh, in Chinese medicine. And, and saffron is the one we, we use for cooking. So the Chinese team put these three herbal medicine together in the formula. So uh, we, we actually done the first clinical studies with that herbal formula at Bankstown Hospital um, now close to eight or nine years ago. So in vascular dementia patient, we, we actually uh, demonstrated that that herbal formula could actually improve the symptoms associated with vascular dementia in terms of neurocognition, in terms of the quality of life and activities of daily living and so on. Now, the plants Professor Chang mentioned are probably familiar to most of you. Saffron, ginkgo and ginseng. It's incredible how powerful they are at healing. So uh, in that also, there are a whole range of compounds uh, which can produce um, anti-inflammatory, um, antioxidant. Uh, some ingredients such as the crossin from the saffron, for example, has been demonstrated to be able to enhance the blood circulation. We also noticed that uh, some of the uh, components can, can enhance the acetylcholine. That's the neurotransmitters in the brain responsible for neurocognition. So the whole range of therapeutic targets, these different components of these uh, three herbs are targeting. While it's making a comeback, there's no denying certain parts of the world have lost touch with some of our ancient knowledge around our botanical medicinal miracles. And in some cases... We've even turned against certain plants. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. I've been studying medicinal plants and fungi for 20 years, and I've studied you know, hundreds of, of different medicinal plants and uh, none of them uh, in all of that time really um, can hold a candle to, uh, to cannabis and uh, particularly around its uh, medicinal applications. That's Justin Sinclair. He's a research fellow also at the Nickham Health Research Institute. And when he tells people he specialises in cannabis research, their reactions can vary. <laughs> yeah, look, I get a full spectrum of responses um, from encouragement and support, uh, particularly from 
a lot of the patients uh, that are out there to some who are uh, more conservative and uh, perhaps think I'm a little bit crazy. So it's uh, um, the, the full spectrum of, of uh, reactions and, uh, you know, it's still uh, regrettably um, rather stigmatized uh, in society today. And I enjoy the opportunity to uh, speak particularly from an educational perspective to, to try and write some of those or correct some of those uh, inconsistencies. That prejudice against cannabis is relatively recent. The clip we played before is from a 1936 movie called Reefer Madness. It was part of a massive campaign by the US Drug Law Enforcement Agency and it was spearheaded by Harry Anslinger. So we all know that uh, alcohol prohibition uh, in the US and around the world uh, didn't really do too well, as it seems prohibition uh, for, for many other things hasn't as well. And so he and his department set about, I guess, trying to find something new to target. Um, so that current stigma that is still associated with cannabis was largely the brainchild of, a, of Mr. Anslinger in a propaganda campaign, uh, which was known as Reefer Madness. Um, and it wasn't, unfortunately, uh, based on any type of evidence-based science at the time. Violence, murder, suicide. Not based on science or, indeed, human history. Much like the plants used in traditional Chinese herbal medicine, the use of cannabis dates back a long way. It bridges so many different cultures. One of the first recorded writings um, that involved cannabis was, was actually based out of China, um, and that was in the Shennong Pensao Ching, and I, I apologise profusely to any native speakers for my butchering of that term, but it was uh, used then for appetite stimulation, which might actually be the first recorded document, uh, documentation of it being, uh, you know, the, the munchies. Based on genetics and ethnobotany, most scholars say cannabis originated in Central Asia. So around the uh, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, the Hindu Kush region. But once the value of this incredible little plant was discovered, it spread across the world. The reality is, is that these seeds would have been traded quite heavily. Uh, with different peoples uh, in the region and um, traded heavily along the Silk Road. And that's largely why we see uh, cannabis is, is found in every single country on the planet um, that is actually capable of sustaining plant life. So I think Antarctica and the Arctic Circle are the only areas that we don't find cannabis uh, because it was so valued by those people. So wherever they traveled, um, they took it with them because it was such a staple um, and uh, they were so reliant upon it. So what else was this plant used for? Well, it seems like there isn't much it can't do or a culture that hasn't used it. It's very likely that cannabis use predated uh, writing in our human evolution. China was one of the first ones. It was used in Egypt around uh, 2350 BCE. It's uh, been uh, documented in Assyria, where it was known as Azalu. Uh, it was useful for grief. It's been used in India for anxiety. It was documented in the Hebrew tradition, where it was known as the aromatic cane. I think it was uh, uh, called kanabosem back in that language. It's been documented in Persia, uh, Greece. Uh, Dioscorides wrote about it. So maybe even being useful for things like arthritis. It was used in Rome, uh, Claudius Galenus or, or Galen described it uh, as a narcotic agent. 
across so many different cultures around the world. And then just suddenly it stopped. We unfortunately lost essentially, you know, 70 to 80 years of, of, of continued research into this plant. And, and we've got a lot of catching up to do. Thankfully, Justin and other researchers like him are pursuing that catch-up right now. In some ways, we're rediscovering on a scientific level what those ancient cultures had learned after millennia of trial and error. But the early signs are incredibly exciting and new areas of treatment are emerging. One of my main research areas is investigating medicinal cannabis for endometriosis, uh, which is a condition that impacts around, I think it's 730,000 Australian women uh, and around 176 million women worldwide uh, estimated. Uh, and it causes chronic pain, uh, infertility, painful sex, gastrointestinal problems, uh, poor mental health. Um, and dramatically, you know, because of all of these things, obviously impacts women's ability to work and study. Um, so that's one area. Um, we're also conducting research into cannabis for primary dysmenorrhea or period pain medicinal cannabis in, in dementia, uh, and we're also looking into clinical trials for post-traumatic stress disorder. Science has revealed just how amazing the body's interaction with cannabis is. I mean, we have these inbuilt receptors custom-made to interact with the chemicals found in cannabis. In fact, we produce our own cannabinoids, called endocannabinoids, and we're just starting to understand this part of the body. And Justin is super excited. The greatest potential that I see is that many of the diseases that are currently in the medical literature, there are so many that we do not know the cause and we do not know how it actually affects the body. And so I, I strongly feel that researching the endocannabinoid system will change our understanding of how many diseases or, or how diseases affect the body and opening up new treatment options. And I think many people may not know this, but there are particularly conditions such as the autoimmune diseases, of which I believe there are roughly around, uh, you know, over 60. Um, we still don't know uh, the etiology or pathogenesis of these. And it's my hope that further research into the endocannabinoid system will uh, unravel um, some of these uh, challenges that medical researchers are facing at the moment and, and bring with it a, a greater understanding of our own anatomy and physiology. So many incredible benefits, it's hard not to get excited by that. And all of this from one plant. The treasures that nature still has to offer that we haven't quite found yet, now that's thrilling. There's almost as many possibilities as there are names for Justin's favourite plant. For starters, there's only one botanically correct term for the genus, of course, which is cannabis. But there are so many different slang terms. Marijuana, Mary Jane, the devil's lettuce, uh, reefer, grass, weed, pot, dope, ganja and chiba. Um, I believe they call it daga uh, in Africa. And uh, from my travels in Mexico, they uh, refer to it uh, as mota. But my favourite is probably the green queen. Uh, because, yeah, because I think, you know, this, this plant really is one of the most uh, incredible medicines Mother Nature, I think, has uh, ever produced. And one thing I find just so staggering is to think that there are over 250,000 flowering plant species uh, on this beautiful blue globe that we call home. And we've perhaps only studied 20,000 of them in depth. 
for their medicinal virtue. I mean, who knows what others are awaiting discovery in an Australian tropical rainforest or on a Madagascan plateau and how they might change patients' lives around the world. When you stop and consider the effects of just the handful of plants mentioned so far, it is truly amazing. The Australian pharmaceutical market alone is worth $25 billion a year. And while modern medicine offers undeniable benefits, we should also remember the amazing plants with healing properties we can grow in our own backyard. I mean, anytime I start to get a scratchy throat or feel a little nauseous, I'll add some fresh ginger to my tea. It's gingerol, that's that main bioactive compound in ginger, which is responsible for much of its medicinal properties. It's got powerful anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. And turns out, it's super easy to grow at home. Yeah, ginger's a really beautiful plant. There are plenty of natives, but the ginger that is used most widely in production, the one that you'd most commonly buy from the supermarket, is a species from Southeast Asia. So it's grown in the tropics. That's Perrette May. She's a horticulturist at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. It's another plant you can grow in a pot as well. So they take about eight to ten months between planting and harvest. Once again, it's a super easy plant to grow. You literally just put it in the ground and kind of just forget about it. Just planting it in a sheltered spot, um, maybe having some filtered sunlight, um, and then making sure that you're planting it into rich, moist soil. So ginger is what's called a rhizome, which is a horizontal underground plant stem that is capable of producing the shoot and root systems of a new plant. So that means you can just buy a piece of ginger from the supermarket and pop it straight in the soil. So when it's ready to harvest, you will see the base of it kind of poking out just out of the soil. The top part of the plant, which is the part in which is going to be photosynthesizing, will start to wilt. So when the plant starts to wilt and starts um, kind of falling over a little bit, that is when it's time to harvest. Another wonder plant is the mighty tea tree. This one's native to Australia, but it's used worldwide for its powerful properties. The oil possesses antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, antiviral and antifungal benefits. So that means you can use it to treat anything from acne to athlete's foot and contact dermatitis. And the good news? Perrette says it's easy for you to grow at home too. If you were to plant it, I wouldn't expect to see flowers, at least for the first few years, just as it's getting itself settled. This is a plant that you can kind of rub your hands through and then smell your hands straight after and you really can smell the tea tree. It's, it's a really beautiful smell. This plant thrives as well. You really just make sure that you have good drainage with it and then this, the soil profile would be looking for when planting would be anywhere between acidic to a neutral soil. Perrette helps look after the herb garden at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Now, it's a place where visitors can enjoy the scents, colours and stories of the herbs used by many cultures that have made Australia their home. It's a super interesting garden. You know, we've got plants of medicinal value from different yeah, areas of the globe. So we've got medicinal plants from Australia and medicinal plants from the Asian region and the European region and the Americas. And there's just so much detail in these beds, so many amazing, cool, ancient plants that have just been used throughout the ages. It seems that somewhere along the way, some of us around the world have forgotten how powerful plants can be. But hopefully 
next time you're pouring yourself a ginger tea or applying some tea tree, you can reflect on the amazing healing power of plants and what discoveries are still out there. Thanks for listening to Branch Out and a huge thank you to all of the incredibly passionate and knowledgeable guests who featured in today's episode. If you liked today's show, please hit subscribe and give Branch Out five stars and a positive review. It helps more people discover the surprising world of plants. Next episode, we're looking at a pandemic that has been going on long before COVID-19 hit. It's an incredibly aggressive and fatal plant disease threatening some of our iconic native plants. And it's called myrtle rust. It affects up to 358 native species in um, Australia. So it, it has a huge impact. Interestingly, there are quite a lot of parallels between the fight against COVID-19 and the myrtle rust pandemic. You'll hear from scientists in both the human health and plant health fields who are utilising DNA technology in similar ways to help fight the spread of each. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode was produced by Dan Butler.